Welcome back to the Paris Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I am super excited to have with us Eileen Carey. Eileen is the High Performance Director for Team USA Nordic Ski. She was the head coach for the 2018 Paralympics in Pyeongchang and the team won 16 medals and most recently in Beijing, they won 14 medals between them. So welcome to the podcast, Eileen. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Back with Liz Broad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's really good to have you and, and hopefully you've had a little bit of downtime since Beijing. Can you give us a bit of background on yourself and your coaching and how you got involved in coaching paranautic ski. Yeah, so I, I grew up in the woods of Maine and had a really active childhood, which led into being a cross-country um, ski racer through college. And when I graduated, I had a lot of injuries that I was dealing with, but really wanted to keep involved in the ski world. And so I started coaching right out right out of college and went from mm-hmm. coaching a, a high school team to uh, working for a an, an Olympic development program up in northern Maine. Mm-hmm. And after doing that for a number of years and being ready for a change, I had a friend who was running the New England based organization for cross country skiing who had just received a grant to start some adaptive sport programs. And he gave me a call and said, hey, I've got, I've got an idea for you. And I, he somehow convinced me that I had the skills to start these adaptive programs when I had not had any experience <laughs> with para-athletes or adaptive sport programs. And so that I, I, I kind of started, that was in 2010. So at that point, I had been coaching for about six years and and then moved into the the para realm and I was kind of focused on the full spectrum but it was a little bit more um, starting programs and recreational focused but during that time I had some experiences hosting races in training camps that included the para national team and mm-hmm it was clear to me that I really missed the competitive side, doing more of that competitive, higher performance coaching side of things. And so I kind of evolved from that program into doing more coaching of development athletes and then eventually as a coach of the national team. Mm, Cool. And so can you talk us through what paranautic skiing is? the disciplines, the eligible impairments, uh, the distances covered, because it's quite complex, isn't it? It is. It Well, t- from the top, it really involves two different sports. So on the Olympic side, cross-country skiing and biathlon are have separate international federations and member organizations. And on the para side, are, we have a smaller athlete population, so those are combined. So, so World Para Nordic Skiing includes mm-hmm. both biathlon and cross-country skiing. And in a normal uh, World Cup competition, we would have six races and three of those races are typically biathlon and three are typically cross-country. And so they're very, most Mm -hmm. of the athletes do both. All of the athletes who do biathlon do cross-country or at least start with cross-country. And then within, we have three different classes and those are sit ski, visually impaired, and standing impairments. Mm-hmm. And so within those classes, there's a weighting system or a factoring system that enables all the sit skiers, irrespective of their actual impairment and their physical capabilities, to compete in the same event against each other. Yes, exactly. And so I think it's it's usually I describe it with sit skiers because it tends to be a, li- a little bit more. I mean, nothing is straightforward in the para world. So, um, <laughs> but in give <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give it a shot. So in the sit ski class, for example, <laughs> if 
you have a single or double leg, leg amputation in full use of your core muscles and you do a race that takes you 20 minutes, your 20 minute time, you will have a factor of 100%. Your 20 minute race will, your final result will be 20 minutes. If you have a spinal cord injury, Mm -hmm. that's let's say around your, your waist, your factor might be 96%. So your 20 minute race might be 1925. Don't check my math. And if you have a (laughs) spinal cord injury that uh, impacts, you know, all the way up through your chest, let's say, and you don't have use of your core at all, then your factor might be 86% in your 20 minute real time race would be, you know, 1740 or something similar to that. Or not at all similar, but the concept mm-hmm. stays the same. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And the same with standing, depending on whether they've got different impairments like a part of an arm missing versus part of a leg missing. So the same factoring system goes into play. And with the visual impairments, depending on the level of vision, there's still a a small factoring system between the different levels of vision impairment as well. Yes, that is exactly right. And then within visually impaired, there's associate rules that are associated with the level of vision as well. So for... Um, for example, an athlete that has no vision is has to ski with a guide, but there are athletes that have some vision that mm-hmm. are not compelled to ski with a guide or may ski with a guide on the more technical sections, but are permitted to ski without a guide if they're in a class that has more vision than they are able to compete without a guide if if they choose to or if they have to for some reason. Mm-hmm. And and just for clarity, the biathlon is shooting as well as cross country. So they they do a say a lap of, of cross country, and then they have a shooting of five shots, and then they do another lap, and then another lot of five shots. So and depending on the length, there'd be different numbers of of sh- uh, shooting. Exactly. So there's um, either periods <clears throat> in between, either two shooting bouts, so ten total shots, or four shooting bouts with 20 total shots and their penalty if they miss a shot for most race distances you do a a penalty lap and Mm -hmm. for one of the race formats you get a minute penalty added to your time which a penalty lap usually takes around 25 seconds so the the individual format is what it's called where a minute is added to your time tends to be a race that is is a really good opportunity for shooting specialists to mm-hmm. to shine in that mm-hmm. event to to excel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And for the for the standing and sit classes they shoot air rifles, 10 meter air rifles and for the visually impaired mm-hmm. classes they shoot audio rifles. So everything is done there's no visual sights on the rifle. It's all it's a laser rifle that is all done via an auditory system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you said that at a World Cup, for example, there'd be six races. Can you give us an idea of the distances and the rough time to complete those distances? And obviously there's different distances for sit-ski versus standing. Can you give us an idea of what that looks like? So the the cross-country uh, distances are sprint, which is around there they are different distances i'll kind of give the times for these um Mm -hmm. so the sprint tends to be somewhere it it really varies and a sprint is quite a misnomer (laughs) it is a really (laughs) taxing it's not it's not yeah and it's a very taxing (laughs) physiological event because you do multiple bouts within a day if you make it to the finals so Mm -hmm. it is around it it could be two and a half to four minutes depending on some of the there's Mm -hmm. the variety of course there is a difference in course distance but also the snow conditions can make a huge difference in all of our our racing Mm -hmm. in the times it takes but generally i would say three to three and a half minutes for a sprint and then a short distance would be uh you know six six to eight minutes, depending on the class. The middle mm-hmm. distance would be 15 to 20 minutes. And then a long mm-hmm. distance would be 
closer to that like 45 minutes to an hour time frame. Mm-hmm. And then in biathlon, the distances range from um, a sprint, which is even more of a misnomer than it is in the cross country side because it's six kilometers. <laughs> and so that usually takes somewhere in the 15 to 20 minute range for a biathlon sprint. And yep. then uh, the middle distance and individual distance, which have different shoot, the shooting is the di- biggest difference in those races. Those tend to be 45 minutes mm-hmm. to an hour, depending on the class and mm-hmm. course and uh, snow conditions. Yep. And so talk a little bit more about how the snow conditions impact on, and obviously it's an outdoor sport, so you've also got potentially wind and other factors and often variabilities in terrain and, and technicality in terms of how much there is uphill, downhill, tight corners, wider corners. But tell us a bit about how the snow conditions themselves can impact on the duration of the race. The snow can have a huge difference you know, I, I I remember as a as a high school racer doing uh, the same course and distance on back to back days, and one day mm-hmm. it was just it was cold and the course was kind of set up and it was pretty icy, and then the next day it was very sloppy. It warmed up, it was above freezing, and it was just sort of the slush fest. Mm-hmm. And I think my my time the first race was like. 11 minutes in the, the second race day on the same exact course was 17 something. And I actually did better the second mm. race day. So that kind of gives you a, an idea <laughs> of the enormous range and also why we don't have world records in these sports. Yeah. But the, there's a couple of major factors in snow. One is the abrasiveness of the snow. So it can be quite abrasive if it's very cold and the there's new snow the the crystals themselves are very sharp and I'm not going to get super nerdy on this, but let, mm-hmm. trust me, it's amazing. It's a, it's an entire <laughs> science and it's, it is really fascinating, but really sharp snow crystals can be very abrasive. And then the snow itself, often man-made snow tends to be just the way it's made tends to be quite abrasive dirt. You know, we can mm-hmm. do things to sort of detract dirt, but dirt can also contribute mm-hmm. to, it, the, the snow itself being just harder to move on. And also it can build up on the ski over time. And then another big factor is just yep. when it gets warm and really sloppy, it creates kind of a suction with the bottom of the ski. And so it, it mm. can become very difficult. It can make the ski move significantly more slowly across the surface of the snow. So that I would say is a, the mm-hmm. 10,000 foot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I know we're not going to get nerdy and get into different waxes because then we go down a whole different rabbit hole. Yes, so. yes, there could be, there can be, and there are many podcasts, I'm sure, that go into obsessive amounts of very nerdy detail about these things. But <laughs> yeah, so let's refer, to, yeah, refer yeah. to those podcasts and we're going to stay on the, <laughs> on the less nerdy physiological side of things. So I guess what I wanted to talk about was the physiological aspects of of paranautic ski and you know there's there's so much range in terms of the the distances covered and the types of events how do you get your athletes ready for that what what would a typical kind of training block look like say on snow versus we'll talk about on snow versus off snow what's the the key focus from a physiological perspective with your training Ooh. <laughs> well, there's, there's a couple, there's a lot of ways to answer that. I think one is that, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of our athletes, in addition to the, you know, just needing to prepare generally for this endurance sport, it's also highly technical, but then a lot mm-hmm. of our focus as well, has to be in the fact that many of our athletes are racing these you know, six races in eight days. That's what a world cup schedule looks like. And we, we do have athletes and we obviously encourage athletes to, um, athletes have very individualized plans based on what their goals and skills are, but we do have several athletes who tend to race a full load. So it's a massive, the demands are, are huge 
And so there's a big focus, obviously, on trying to, you know, balance the, the, the preparation and being ready for the, the overall physiological demands of, you know, traveling usually to often to Europe, having a couple days on snow, and then being able to perform at a high level in six, you know, always, almost always at least four, but four to six events in an eight day period of time. And so, so balancing the sort of the bigger picture physiological demands and ability to recover. And so, you know, we, and then our, our schedule is usually two weeks, two weeks on at an event traveling between the travel to being preparing for being at an event and flying home and then balancing that with, and then being home for two weeks. And so I, a lot of our focus, you know, when we get to that high level is just how can we maximize recovery, honestly, is, is uh, the biggest challenge and probably our biggest focus in all of the, the details of what we do with athletes. Um, but obviously we have to balance that with the, the technological demands, both on snow and on the shooting range too, which is a whole nother <laughs> challenge. Yeah, because shooting obviously depends fairly heavily on controlling heart rate, even though they're, you're not going to get heart rate down like you would if you were just shooting alone without the exercise. But controlling heart rate leading into the range and, and being able to manage getting shots off in between, you know, just with that control of, of the movement of the, of the rifle. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And, and there's, there's a range, like you, you don't want it to drop your heart rate to drop too low because then the stroke volume of your heart, the, the blood that's pumping through your heart is so makes a bigger movement on your rifle, even if it's less frequent. Whereas if you're in this kind of high zone, but you can, your, your breathe, your breathing at least is down enough that you can, you can pause for that shot. Then you actually have better control, even though your heart might be beating a little bit faster. And so figuring mm -hmm. out what that, sweet spot is, is obviously a very individualized thing. And in, in how athletes kind of identify that is takes a lot of practice, but then you go to a different range mm -hmm. and it's different on a different range. Some ranges you might have a downhill approach and others, you might be going uphill. Mm -hmm. You might, you know, the, what we talked about earlier with snow conditions could have an impact. So if the snow mm -hmm. conditions are really tricky, even if it's not an uphill approach, you might be, it might be really difficult to, to enter the range in a, in a low mm -hmm. heart and low enough heart rate state. And so there's, there's a lot of factors that, that play into, to that, that shooting performance yeah. that are, that are, physiological that you might not even see, even if you're kind of watching the sport from the outside, which are pretty, really interesting, I think. Mm. Yeah, there's, it's, there's so many components to it. So if you gave us a bit of an idea, say early part of the snow season, what would a typical training week look like? So early part of the snow season, there we would definitely we would be pushing some volume. We try to get, as skiers, we try to get the majority of our volume in the, the summer months and then go into more intensity mm -hmm. as the season approaches. And so in the early winter, we would be doing probably two to three strength sessions a week and mm -hmm. six to eight on snow sessions. And we would probably total total volume might be in the there's a lot of factors there but in the the mm. 12 to 16 hours um, mm -hmm. and so we'd be trying to push some of the you know some of the adaptations just being on snow going from either not skiing at all our sit skiers don't really do they they do very little a lot of them do do summer sports, different summer sports. And so yeah. Yeah. they are sometimes kind of transitioning to the ski mo movement almost entirely. You know, mm. we do maintain some contact with that through ski ergometers and sometimes uh, skis that are on rollers that you can use on the roads. Um, but those are 
pretty mm-hmm. poor approximation. And so part of it is just <laughs> kind of developing that ski specificity and volume. And then mm-hmm. there is a very high technical focus in the beginning of the, the winter, yep. especially. Mm-hmm. But we'd also be moving into doing more higher intensity interval stuff. And we would, we really, sometimes we do change the physiological plan in order to, we're not together a lot. And so this is something that, that we might have to adjust some of our training based on when we can be together because the value of having some head to head competition is very high. Mm -hmm. And so we might modify our physiological plan a little bit to maximize our time together. And so we might do a little bit more intensity doing head to head maneuvering stuff when we have early season snow with our sit skiers versus our Mm -hmm. standing skiers who maybe spend more time with other standing skiers. And so the value of that head to head, we have a little bit more time to develop that they're doing it through the summer months Mm -hmm. on roller skis. And so, you know, that there are some differences with our classes just based on logistics, quite frankly, but the overall physiological demands are, are very similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you obviously have to interplay all of the components of both, you know, the the strong aerobic base with the technical specificity of of skiing plus the higher intensity, you know, capacity for those shorter distances and for being, I guess, just being able to cope with the total load of a race, a race week. Yes, exactly. And, and kind of, I would add one more thing to that. That's kind of a big piece is that I, that I think we've learned a lot of as a program is just the mental, the mental Mm -hmm. component of skiing together in a group, especially I think for sit skiers, which if, if you can imagine the way that you can imagine, imagine Nordic skiers, standing skiers, you know, they're, they're able to maneuver quite easily, you know, they, there's ankle joints and knee joints. And even if there is a, a leg amputation, let's say it's usually like a single below the knee. And so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of, there's more options for maneuvering. Whereas a sit skier, if you can imagine it's, it's essentially a, a chair that's fixed to two skis and there's no, it's not permitted by the rules to have any articulating joints. And so the options for maneuvering are significantly more limited. And a Mm. lot of what we work on is just sort of that mental, working in the mental component of dealing with skiing in traffic while having to maximize that physiological, those physiological demands of what happens. And and so we do, we do a lot of, we force a lot of bad things to happen. (laughs) We try to make, you know, we, we will make them. Yeah. Yeah. How do you deal with it when somebody cuts you off or, you know, we'll intentionally, Mm. you know, try and sort of mess with that a little bit. And, and that Mm. obviously being able to deal with that without it taking on a huge physiological load, because you have this intense stress response Mm. is a is a big part of of what we do we try to do when we're together Mm. as well yeah wow there's there's so much to it so what do you think are some of the key nutrition aspects and and issues that are faced by your skiers obviously recovery on between races in a in a racing block is a key component and that can take on some nutrition aspects as well as obviously you know physical aspects of recovery and mental aspects of recovery but what do you think are some of the key nutrition issues that you've experienced with the athletes over the time that you've worked with them I think one of the things that I guess has been a a challenge that I in my own athletic career I just never thought of (laughs) which maybe gives you the (laughs) idea of the level of an athlete I was is I thought of things in these boxes. And so it's like, okay, you need to be hydrated. You need to, you need to fuel your, what you're doing. You need to eat the, you know, eat appropriate things before, during, after, you know, that level I felt like was, I I felt pretty relatively keyed into, but you know, what I've learned a lot in coaching and especially in coaching para-athletes and at this high level is how to balance those things with sleep, honestly. And 
and mm. and the importance of sleep as a part of your recovery and sort of integrating all of these things. And so, you know, just the logistics of being hydrated enough, but still being able to sleep and what happens if yeah. you don't have normal bladder function and what happens mm. if going to the bathroom on a, on a flight is complicated logistically mm. because you use a wheelchair yeah. and there's multiple, you know, you have to, it, it takes, it takes time and mm. that can lead to sort of limiting hydration and just sort of yeah. the, the, the fine, fine tuning the details of how that happens for each individual person and how that interplays with recovery and especially sleep. That I think is something that, you know, we're always continually trying to improve and can continue to improve within our program and athletes. But it mm -hmm. is a, it is a really big, big challenge. It's not, you know, I think it's not as simple as just, oh yeah, you eat this before the race and you eat this after the race. And as long as you have eight <laughs> glasses a day, you're good. <laughs> um, yeah. No, wouldn't that be nice though? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> it's not like you haven't got other things to think about anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so one of the other things that I think we haven't talked about is the fact that you're dealing with cold conditions often. I mean, some of the conditions can be well below zero Celsius and windy and you know, being in an outdoor environment and, and it can contrast with you know sometimes skiing in a t-shirt because it's actually too warm and, the, and mm -hmm. the skis this as you say the snow is slushy and it's slow what how do you feel the energy requirements are for you know paranautic skiers in terms of you've got so many different aspects the physical demands of the sport but also the variability of the weather conditions the wind and those sorts of things do you feel as though there's a bit of a sometimes early on when people start skiing do they fit do you feel as though they really underestimate how many calories they need yes and i that i think is probably you know even more than the the technical and physical training aspects of the sport are the hardest to figure out as well because there's so many because it can be hard to get, especially when you're racing in a race environment where you're racing that much, it can be hard to get enough calories just with mm -hmm. the schedule of the day and with your desire to eat, quite frankly, can be pretty suppressed, I think, for a lot of our athletes. And so I do think there's an underestimation of it. And I, you know, I think there's always education, you know, a lot of the education that we do at the beginning of an athlete's career or when they become are part of our program are around sort of supporting the training and, and then go into kind of periodizing eating for your, for what you're, you're doing. But I do mm -hmm. think that the environmental factors are, they're complicated and they're yeah. really difficult to figure out because the opportunities for figuring it out are limited. We're not in these, you know, yes, you, we're not in these really warm environments very often. And when we are, mm -hmm. oh, by the way, they're at the Paralympic Games and it's <laughs> a big show. And that's typically when this happens. And so we end up also having all sorts of different strategies that we can kind of, that we only implement or we usually only implement at the games. And so yeah, there, yeah, there's another whole component of the logistics, the knowledge that athletes have of what they need, and also just obviously the mental component of approaching the race you've been training for for years and feeling the like there's some different variables. So, yeah, yeah, everything's being just a change up from what you used to. Because I, you know, I think sometimes. I remember we used to do race feeds on the, the longer duration mm -hmm. days and and if, you know, as a sports dietitian you go back to what you've been taught and you know, basically effectively it's a race of not really much more than an hour and, and it's definitely less for the sit skiers. And so if you look at the sports nutrition recommendations, you shouldn't need to feed someone during that race. Mm -hmm. But we did for various reasons and, you know, they're not getting a huge amount. Part of it's to have contact with the athlete and, and 
part of it is also just sustaining them throughout the whole duration of the event, the, mm-hmm. not just that one race, but the whole event is opportunities to get some fuel and to get some fluid in and, and to make sure that we're not tanking out completely in any one event, which then compromises the next day and the day after. Yeah, that's a really big point and one that is, I think I, I use that the most often to convince somebody that they should feed <laughs> because most people, it, it's logistically complicated, especially yeah. with a sit skier and with with visually impaired skiers, I would say more, more mm-hmm. so. But it is a hugely taxing event and over the course of a, of a full race series and being able to a, just get a little bit of recovery within the context of either during or right after just sort of supporting that entire load is, is probably the biggest thing, but there's also, you know, one of the things that is tricky is just even, you know, from a, from a staffing standpoint in the way that we support athletes during a race it can be really difficult to predict when it's needed. And um, mm. I'll give an example of of this from the Paralympic Games in, in Beijing that we just returned from a couple months ago, where we were in a middle distance race for sit skiers. Mm-hmm. This was uh, for the sit ski women. It was seven and a half K. And yep. Oksana Masters, who's one of the most experienced para-athletes in the sport, in the world, Get it's three laps of a two and a half K and she was partially through her first two and a half K lap. So, you know, minutes, few minutes into the race. Mm -hmm. And she yelled out to one of the courses on coaches on course. We all, you know, are kind of around the course and have radio communication. Mm -hmm. I need a feed. And, and we weren't prepared for a feed. I mean, we're mm. in, in, and we operate, we're pretty dialed as a staff and we yeah. think through every little detail and there's, we make sure that we understand how we're going to support the athletes and the athletes understand how they're going to be supported, where they're going to get yeah. information about how they're doing, where they're going to get information about where their, their shot was in a biathlon race, where they're going to get feeds, mm-hmm. where they're going to have a secondary feed if the first one fails because they came through yeah. with another teammate, whatever the, the situation might be. And we weren't prepared for this. And so I, you know, I, I don't know what I did. I think I went to the finish line and got some, got some, I mean, I think I could only pull off water at that point, but got some water. It was hot. It was a hot day. That's why she needed it. Mm -hmm. And also it was towards the end of the, it was the sixth individual race of the Paralympic games. It was probably 50 something degrees and sunny, which does not, Uh, especially if your context is, Australia probably doesn't seem that warm (laughs) Um, Mm, or if you do a summer sport, but it is really warm, especially if you're inside of a carbon fiber sit ski and, Mm. you know, your sweating is limited to your upper body. And if you can sweat at all, um, which she can. And so we were just having to sort of figure out how to get her a feed in this seven and a half K race. And that, Mm. that was, that was a first for her. That was a first for me. And we pulled it off. It was not, it was not elegant. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, Is there video footage of it? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope not, but we, we pulled it off, but you know, so there's, there's always, I guess the, the point there being is it's even, you know, it's in these longer distance races, which aren't even really that long and it's within the context of the race, but there's always still, and it's, I never would have imagined needing a feed in a seven and a half. I mean, a seven and a half K race probably takes Oksana about 20, 22 minutes maybe. Mm. And so, and, and she really needed it. And afterwards, yeah. and it, it was not smooth, as I said, and it was not at the most ideal time. And we usually plan them so that they, they take as little time away from a pole stroke as possible because they have to stop yeah. pulling. Yeah. And so we kind of do it on the top of an, uphill going into a downhill so they can kind of tuck their poles, grab drink really quickly and, and then dump the bottle and and be off and lose a half a second. Maybe And this was at the bottom of an uphill. I mean, she lost several seconds, lost Mm -hmm. a bunch of momentum. And, you know, afterwards I was checking in with her and just like, I'm sorry, that was 
such a bad, but I was like, I, I did the best I could. I couldn't figure <laughs> out a better way to pull that off. And she just said, well, that, that was such a lifesaver. I was, I was totally struggling. I don't know what I would have done without that. Yeah. And, you know, so there's just, you're always, you, you feel like whenever you feel like you're like, hey, I got this figured out. I know how we need to support. Uh, Someone will always throw a spanner in the woods. Yeah. There's always something that is a little surprising, you know, or the, or the cooling, like I, you know, alluded to, we have some athletes who don't, who aren't able to sweat. And so cooling on a day like that becomes really important. And so we were Mm -hmm. ready for that. We had, oh, that's what I did. I used the water that I was expecting to use to dump on some athletes to kind of cool them down. I used it for her feed, but, Uh um, but that, that kind of becomes another factor. Yeah. In, in these warm, warm races. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I'm remembering back to some crazy things that have happened, but um, yeah, there's so many, <laughs> so many examples we could give of things that go a little bit astray, but. Um, <laughs> some, um, are you, are you referring to some of your previous gymnastics moves in order to help <laughs> feed athletes, Liz? I think yes. we should maybe get into that. <laughs> No, no, no. I'm also thinking about the the times we've had to warm them up by physically kind of holding on to them and, and doing a bear hug and you know. Yeah, heated vests and Yeah. 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 All sorts of things. Um so can we focus on how do athletes get involved in paranautic ski? Like what are the opportunities both within America but also internationally, if you know? Yeah, in in the U.S., we um, do we focus a lot on development and, and trying to create opportunities. And I would say we do those in a, in a few different ways. We have an awesome crew of coaches who are focused on this, and we have we have a, a survey that if anybody is interested can go. If you go to TeamUSA.org and go to the Paralympic Nordic section, you can get a link to the an athlete or guide survey. Mm-hmm. And so from a purely, you know, this is how we learn about athletes, that is kind of step number one, either through that survey, or we'll often hear about athletes through coaches or family members or kind of however we can, we usually direct them mm-hmm. to that first. And then it's pretty individualized from the beginning, I would say, because we do a lot of start COVID has been really helpful in helping us develop some virtual resources, both Mm. intro information about our our program and how to get involved in the sport and also uh, virtual training sessions. So we do mm-hmm. weekly virtual training sessions. And so that's one way to, to get involved. But we also work really closely with especially Nordic clubs to mm-hmm. have athletes integrated into the clubs in their communities. And so mm-hmm. the first thing that we'll do when we learn of an athlete, let's say, in, in you know, Minneapolis is we will try to connect them with their local club. And so rather than spending a lot of time coaching that athlete, we are more likely to spend time creating resources or supporting that athlete's coach, local club coach to how do you integrate a strength plan that you do with the rest of your team for an athlete that only has one arm or, mm-hmm. um, you know, what can you do if uh, for a sit skier, what kind of courses might a sit skier use in your trail system and how might you support them? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we do spend a lot of time and as much of our energy as possible on those solutions, because that's always going to be, you know, an athlete being able to ski and learn and improve where they live is always going to be the best solution. Mm. And also it's a cool opportunity. You know, it's a, it's a, I think a lot of people, if they, they hear of Paralympic skiing, they think of, you know, Alpine skiing. And so just having that visual for people knowing that this is possible is one of our biggest challenges. And so the more that we can have a high school athlete training and racing alongside their, their high school teammates and Mm. club club teammates, that is, that has been really big for our development as a program. And now we have, we have coaches who are reaching out to us or are saying, Hey, we want to, if we want to start a Paralympic program, how would we do that? Or, Mm. um, 
you know, I recently got a call from, there are two sort of national championships in cross-country skiing and one national championship in biathlon each winter. And every all, all three of those event organizers reached out to me to ask if they could have a para component added. I did not, oh, you know, fantastic. so... So that that kind of education, it's now it's it's kind of on the forefront of of many people's minds, at least certainly from an event mm-hmm. perspective, and I think more and more from a club and coaching perspective. And so that for us is is how we're going to be the most successful because we don't have the capacity to, and, and we shouldn't be the ones. There's a great to coach a ton of skiers, but there are there's a great club system in this country and. Yeah if we can kind of utilize that, that's, that's our goal. So we learn about athletes, they fill the survey out, we try and get some sort of intro meeting with them one-on-one or as part of a group. And then we help find the resources in their community if they exist. And we also look for opportunities to bring them together with other athletes, uh, because that can, it can be quite isolating too to be the only person Mm -hmm. who skis with one pole or in a sit ski on your team. And so we do look for opportunities to have some connections with other, with other athletes. And so we have several camps and racing opportunities for pair athletes throughout the, throughout the winter. And so we really try and we, and we, we try and tailor that to the athletes experience and age and, um, Mm -hmm sometimes classification, depending, you know, sometimes we'll do a standing development camp or, you know, something like that. But, um, so it's not, it's not straightforward, but, but we are really, our development coaches are amazing. They're the best and Mm. they always find great solutions, even in challenging circumstances. So it's, it's definitely our, one of the ways that we as a program have improved over the last couple quads and um, con- it continues to be a really important goal yeah. of ours. And not a, yeah, and not only is it a way of getting athletes involved, but also it's a, by virtue of the fact that they're going through their clubs, it's a way of getting coaches involved in coaching para-athletes. So you're killing two birds with one stone really, aren't you? Exactly. And, you know, I think this is, this is something that I say a lot when I, if I'm doing coaches clinics or, or talking to coaches who are like I was when I started coaching para athletes, which was, I was nervous. I was thought that I didn't know anything. I thought that I was going to screw something up. And, you know, I think there's value to that humility, obviously, I think regardless of who you're coaching, but I also, you know, if you, but coaches, you know, if you, if, if you take the approach that every athlete is an individual, which regardless of whether they're a para-athlete or not, that is 100% true, mm-hmm. para-coaching may, para-coaching does really like amplify a lot of those, of, of those concepts of an athlete being an individual. But if you are capable of, of looking at an athlete and saying, okay, how are you coming to me today? which could have to do with the fact that, you know, you were born with one leg and it could have to do with the fact that you didn't sleep last night. And guess what? The Mm. sleeping might actually be bigger hindrance today. (laughs) And so if you're capable of kind of operating in that space and working with the athlete to figure out how to, how to make something happen. And if you understand the baseline of what we're trying to do, we're trying to, when it comes down to it, we're trying to move from point A to point B faster. How do we do that? We do that by being more efficient. Well, how are we more efficient? Well, we can do that by this technical thing. Well, if you can't do this technical thing, how might you achieve the same thing in a different way to account for mm-hmm. the fact that you have, you're using one pole? Yep. You know, if you're capable of that kind of asking questions and problem solving, then you can coach a pair athlete. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I think has been really interesting is that I think all coaches would benefit from this concept. And when mm. I've gone and coached for the local ski club here that, um, th- they, they have a para team and, but they also have a lot of, of athletes who are trying to qualify for the Olympics. And mm. the way that I coach those athletes, when I come in and do a session with them now is different from the way I would have done it 10 years ago. Cause 10 years right. ago, I felt like there was a kind of a handy script of, of what to do. 
<laughs> and that was great, but it also limited what I was seeing. And yeah. it sort of said, okay, this is the drill that you're supposed to do for this thing. And now the way I look at it is, so what are we really trying to achieve and how might we do that? And maybe you make up a drill or maybe mm. you, maybe you don't do a drill at all. And you, you have a five minute conversation rather than telling an athlete what to do before you, before you start the session. And that yeah. might be the most yeah. valuable way that you can kind of contribute to their progress and work with them. So now you got my coaching philosophy. You just got a whole. Yeah. Oh, you just answered like all of the, the next 10 questions I was going to ask you all in one hit. So well done. It's because I want my snack, Liz. And I know that if I answer your questions more quickly that I get to my snack. You know, I, I am also, coaches also need to eat. As you oh, know, you have oh, saved sure. me. <laughs> you, you have saved me more than once. I think I had an Eileen pocket. There was always a pocket of food, but I, I you need to eat this now. <laughs> yeah, those go for the gold bars or whatever those were. There was some like peanut butter chocolate deliciousness that I still dream about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very important for the for the coaches to be equally well fueled and, and on the ball. <laughs> for sure. We've talked a lot about the coaches and the athletes. What about practitioners? Any recommendations that you have for practitioners, whether they're sports psychology, physical therapy, sports medicine, sports nutrition, anything that you'd recommend to them when working with para-athletes? Oh, man, I I am a question asker, so I would ask them a bunch of questions. Would probably be <laughs> but, you know, I think in in working with a lot of different really – amazing people since I've been involved in this program. I guess what I would say is the the link of, you know, people who are really incredibly valuable for for athletes are are people who are willing to have, you know, who are a little bit curious and who are willing to not have the answers and mm -hmm. and you know, in when it comes down to it, as you very well know, you know, there's not a lot of research on para athletes. Mm. And yep. that is a that's a limiting factor, but it also kind of similar to what I was talking about in coaching, I think there's also an opportunity there. And so if you start mm. from a place of saying, okay, I I don't actually know what you know what your day-to-day -day is like uh from a hydration mm. standpoint and what your challenges are. So let's let's have a conversation about that. Or, you yeah. know, I might have an assumption being a PT, I, I might see something in your gate and I have a, an assumption about what that, that looks like, but let's talk about your, what your training is like, or, you know, maybe that's because the way that you are, you have to shoot your rifle, like from a sit ski position is, mm. is really difficult on your lower back. And maybe as a practitioner, I can help sort of solve whatever you're going through, but maybe it's mm -hmm. also having a conversation with the person who's coaching and working on equipment that maybe there's something that we can do to sort of solve this in a mm -hmm. more of a global perspective. And so for me, I think it's just being willing to not have the answers, to be willing to ask the questions and working to problem solve and yep. being able to do that with with other people. And, and I think that that spirit of collaboration and humility and curiosity is always going to produce better results. Mm -hmm. And especially because when you do that, you have to engage the athlete if you want to do it well. And yeah, when that happens, then, then I think that, that they become a, they become a part of that solution and they have to be a part of that solution. Like you can't just hmm. say, this is what you're supposed to do. Now do it. Yeah. It's like, okay, here are the exercises. Are you going to do them? No, I'm not going <laughs> to do that one because I can't actually, you know, my, yeah. my, when I lock out my leg, I can't actually do that. And I can't hold my foot on the ground if I don't lock out my leg. It's like, okay, so the yeah. exercises that I use for all my other patients won't work for you. Like, let's yeah. figure out this, you know, yeah. this is the challenge Let's yeah. figure it out. So I guess that that would be my observation of when, you know, the people that have been the most valuable to our program, practitioners and coaches alike have, I would say, have that, have that quality. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Fabulous. Well, Eileen, I'm conscious that you've 
got a busy schedule and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but we have one final question, which is a bit more personal. What's your favourite food? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. Yes. Uh, Well, mint chocolate chip ice cream. (laughs) I know it's definitely not cilantro. Um, (laughs) It's not cilantro. (laughs) Uh, I like eating. My favorite food is food. I like eating a lot. But yeah, mint chocolate chip ice cream is. Will always win you over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can never go wrong in my book. (laughs) Fabulous. Okay, well, thank you. I know you died. Oh, sorry. I'm not going to, I'm going to cut you off just one moment because I actually want to ask you a question, Liz. Um, Okay, so. You know, I know the chocolate milk, the, you know, the combination of proteins and sugar and all that is, makes it a great recovery food. But what about mint chocolate chip ice cream? That's my question to you, because I recently built out a van and I have a fridge with a freezer in it that fits ice cream. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah, you've got to have a freezer that fits ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was actually the entire, I literally, when I ordered the fridge, I literally measured the ice cream that I liked to see if it would fit in there. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't kidding that chocolate chip ice cream is my favorite food. It really is. Anyways, I just wonder what your opinion is about using mint chocolate chip ice cream or any ice cream for that matter as a recovery food. Uh, I think it's a treat food. It's something to be enjoyed, not for a specific purpose other than to feed your soul. <laughs> okay, let me ask the question one more time in a different way. What do you think? <laughs> What do you think about <laughs> What do you think about using mint chocolate chip ice cream as a recovery food for someone who doesn't care about their performance like me? Uh, then go for it. Yes. Okay. Now I'm now I'm ready. <laughs> oh, fabulous. Well, thank you so much for your time for your experience for your wealth of of knowledge and for sharing that with us i really really appreciate it and we'll look forward to bigger and better things to come from paranautic ski in the u.s and wish you a very safe and happy summer where you can actually get a bit of downtime with your van and your freezer full of mint chocolate chip ice cream well now i now i have a dietitian's mandate to do that. That's how I just translated that what just happened. So yeah, thank you also in, in being interested about the sport. It's really nice to talk to you. Uh, we miss you. And I hope you also have a great winter. And I'm glad that we have a summer right now so, so, that, I can, so that I can do a little mountain biking and ice cream eating. Yes. Yes. Good for the soul. <laughs> Arlene has some great messages to coaches around being curious and wanting to explore how you can help the individual in whatever place they're at as opposed to coming in with a fixed mindset around how you're going to coach every athlete. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on the website. And I also hope that you'll share this podcast. Please join us next time when we talk to Mike Jennings, who is a Paris snowboard coach.